It's good to be with you this morning and also with uh, the CARP campus and Ventura campus. Let's give them some love this morning. Um, And if you will, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue in Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. A text that is so glorious, we're just going to slow down and camp out here. Ephesians uh, 2, verse 10, this is what Paul says. He says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you are speaking to the church in this verse. Thank you for writing a story in the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowing us to be a part of it. God, we who were hooligans and ruffians and rebellious renegades against you, you chased after us with the the tenacity of your love and grace. You made us new and you created a church out of us that we'd be able to enjoy you and teach others how to enjoy you as well. God, I pray that the gospel would humble us today. I pray that it would move us, that it would set our feet to dance, that it would also set our hearts to dance as our eyes are open to see the glorious purposes of God in the world and how you, by grace through Jesus Christ, have brought us in to participate in that. Lord, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in this place. There are so many ills, so many distractions, so many things that would garner and try to fight for our attention this morning, but your blood speaks a better word, and I pray that it would speak loudly today as we set ourselves in subjection to your word. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts where we're at today for the transformation of our lives and our community and our cities. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, in one sentence, is speaking about stepping out into mission, but he's doing it in such a way as to describe a story of cosmic proportions. This is just what Paul does. He just throws out a sentence. You've been created for good works. Praise God. But in the way that he weaves these sentences together, he's alluding to through the story of the Bible to capture everything that God has done to get us to a certain point. And in this case, he's going all the way back to Genesis. Paul, in one sentence, is describing a story, and he starts with creation. He moves through the fall. He ends with redemption, and he caps it off with the restoration of all things. And so when he speaks to us in verse 10, he is unloading the entire Bible in your lap. He's telling you a story, and he's wanting you to get caught up in that story, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so Paul is alluding all the way back to Genesis. He doesn't say it, but his story comes straight from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, in places like uh, verse 26 through verse 31, we see God creating everything, and in an explosion, in an explosion 
of creativity, God puts forth and manifests his ability to create, his ability to do rightly, his holiness and his glory. He is showing himself off in creation. And after he gets done, he steps back and his magnum opus, so to speak, his cream of the crop, his, his, his uh, crown of all of his creation is humanity. And he steps back in verse 26 and he says, let us make human beings in our own image. Notice he's speaking in plurality. He's, he's not saying, let me make people just like me. He's speaking in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the first thing he points out is community and relationship, which is why he'll say later, let us make man in our own image to be like us, and therefore he created them man and woman, male and female, he created them. He goes on to say, let us make human beings in our own image, verse 26, Genesis 1, to be like us. How in the world is humanity supposed to be like God? I can't go through walls. I can't disappear at will. I don't know if that's something that he could do, but I imagine he could do it. I am not omniscient or omnipresent. I can't create stuff out of nothing. How is it that humanity is supposed to be like God? Well, he gives it to us in Genesis 1 when he commissions Adam and Eve to do what? Reign over all that I have given. He says things like be fruitful, bear fruit, multiply, spread out, fill the earth, govern it, subdue it. All that I have created for my glory, I am giving stewardship over to you. Genesis 2 verse 15, I want you to tend it, govern it, and watch over it, delegate, rule. So God makes us to bear his image, and then he gives us stewardship over everything to reflect the glory of his image. He says, I created this garden, have a party. Spread out the garden of Eden, Eden to the, the ends of the earth, the Hebrews trying to describe this perfection that came at the hands of God used one beautiful Hebrew term called shalom. We get the word peace from it. But it's more than just peace of mind, you know what I mean? It's more than just, I had peace about this decision I was making, I, I feel good, I have peace. The Hebrews were speaking about this holistic wholeness, this togetherness, this harmony where everything in the universe is just right as it was supposed to be intended by God, this shalom that emanated from the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam and Eve, I want you to spread the shalom of God. Start here and enjoy it in the process. We bear his image, we bear the shalom and we reflect his glory. We know how the story ends. Adam and Eve botched the whole thing. The greatest gig humanity has ever known. Garden of Eden, shalom of God, no sin, no trouble, have a blast. They botch it. And what do they do to destroy the plan of God or, or to hijack the plan of God with their sin? Well, Adam fails to represent God rightly in creation. He listens to the serpent. Because of his failure to represent God, his failure to obey God, he suffers shame and he loses intimacy with God. So Adam loses the representation. He, he fails to obey God. He fails to steward creation. 
He fails to experience that intimacy with God. And when he loses the intimacy with God, he loses intimacy with all other forms of relationships. So his marriage tanks. He fails to love and lead his wife rightly. In other words, sin enters the world through Adam in what we call the fall. So we've moved from creation to the fall. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam sinned and brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Now, we know that means we die physically, but it means so much more than that as well. It means that the image that God has embedded in the soul of every man and woman has now been marred. It's been distorted. We didn't lose the image of God. Every human born has intact the image of God. It has just now been distorted. That's why atheists can still do beautiful things. That's why agnostics can still do beautiful things in the sciences and in the arts. That's why we can do stuff for the good of humanity. We still have the image of God. Now it has been marred. Imagine for a moment that you want to listen to music. You want to listen to a symphony. And so you ask Chris Lazo, I want to listen to a symphony. Give me something. I go into my truck, I find a CD that has been at the bottom of a pile of all of my junk in the back of the truck, and I give it to you, it's been warped by the heat of the sun, it's scratched, it's distorted. You plug it in, and you still hear all the right notes. You still hear a little bit of the music, but it is distorted. It is bad audio quality, it is warped, it's scratched, it's skipping. You're still getting the image, the representation, but it is jacked up. Enter humanity. Image of God jacked up. So God moves on from Adam in the story of the gospel. And he chooses a different representative. He chooses good old Abe. And he tells Abraham to do the same thing that he told Adam to do. And through Abraham, he chooses a people group called Israel. And out of Israel, God would call priests and kings to do the same thing that he called Adam to do, to rule over and to steward the world on God's behalf. And just like Adam, Israel and all of her kings fail miserably. And this is the story throughout the entire Old Testament. Humanity failing to do what God mandated us to do in the garden. Be intimate with him and to spread his shalom. And so God sends his son. He sends him, yes, to die on the cross and to be uh, risen from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, but he also sends him to live for 30 years, doing what? Everything that Adam failed to do. Everything that you and I failed to do on a regular basis. Jesus lived in perfect relationship to his father. He was an exact image of the nature of the Father and he lived in perfect intimacy. His Father would look down on the Son and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And from that intimacy with the Father came right relationship and reconciliation with every human form of relationship in his earthly life. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Every relationship that he was given by the Father, he did perfectly and rightly. He related rightly to the Father. He related rightly to other people. And he related rightly to all of creation. Where Adam failed to cast the serpent out of the garden, Jesus would come in on the scene and cast demons out. 
Where Adam failed in his marriage, he would begin to apply the teachings of the Old Testament, the Torah, to marriages, taking it a step further. Oh man, you think you're doing it all right because you're not cheating on your wife? Well, I'll tell you this. The gospel declares that if you look at someone the wrong way, you've already cheated in your heart. And he would begin to expound the Torah in ways that people were blown away with. He taught people how to manage finances. He went over and beyond theology and he went to love the poor and the destitute, the prostitutes, the hated and the tax collectors. He was obedient to his parents. And he was faithful at the trade of his father in carpentry. Then he dies on the cross and Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 18, Where Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Jacked up. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. What is that one act of righteousness? Jesus stepping in on the scene, putting on the flesh of humanity, doing everything that we could not do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dying for our mess-ups And then in what Martin Luther would call the great exchange, saying, I am trading your your sin for my righteous resume so that you can walk in what God has intended for you to walk in since Genesis. Not just to be okay, not just to be forgiven, but to take a hold of the divine mandate, spreading and experiencing the shalom of God everywhere you happen to be. So when Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, God has created us anew in Christ Jesus. He's saying God has recreated jacked up, distorted people according to what he intended you to be from the dawn of creation. He created you for this purpose. You jacked it up. He has recreated you for that purpose over and over again. You weren't just created. You were created twice. Hence the words of Jesus to the Pharisee Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus then recreates us in a couple of ways. One, by restoring what we lost in the garden. Shalom. He restores that intimacy that we lost. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the most important thing we've got going on for us, even this morning in this building, is the presence of God. And Jesus brings us the presence of God. He's the greatest worship leader that has ever lived. But he doesn't just restore our intimacy, right? He doesn't just fix us so that we can kick it in our closet, reading the Bible all day, filling up, He also restores our missional mandate and says, I am giving you what you jacked up. And I am giving you the power of the Holy Spirit to do what I have been calling you to do for thousands of years. And then where Adam failed and Israel failed and all of Israel's kings failed and we failed, Jesus takes failures. He creates a church. He commissions the church to then image and missionalize the shalom of God everywhere we happen to be. 
in Santa Barbara, in Carpinteria, in Ventura, and abroad. Go back to the garden. Listen to Jesus drawing this out. For example, in his prayer, his high priestly prayer, he's praying to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 4. He says to the Father, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I was the better Adam. A few verses later, verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. He ends John in John chapter 20, verse 21, by turning to his disciples and saying, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you to display the glory, to display the gospel, to display the shalom to a world that desperately needs it. Go and do what I have done. I am bringing back what Adam has lost so that you can now walk in it. So God restores the original design and the original mission through Jesus until that day where Christ himself will restore all things. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It is this cosmic story in which God is making everything according to the way that he intended it. And here's what we have done. The church in America, I myself, on many occasions, have taken that story and picked, cherry-picked, and chosen the things that I liked about it. For example, we have truncated the gospel and we have taken out bits and pieces according to our needs. For example, some of us have taken this huge, glorious story and we've taken off the bookends. We've taken off the uh, creation and the restoration and we've concentrated just on the middle. When you do that, when you concentrate just on Jesus died for my sins so that I can be okay, you leave out the bookends. You leave out the cosmic purposes of what God is doing all across the universe, around the world, in your cities. Not only do you miss the grand scope of what God is doing, but you create for yourself an individualistic gospel. Case in point. I'm suffering from self-esteem issues, but the gospel makes me feel special about myself. Or what is rampant, especially in the, the state of California, the consumerism that so easily entangles us. The gospel for us becomes God saves me so that I can be happy with my life. It makes me feel better about myself. It makes me have all the stuff that I need and want. It makes me want to live the life that I have chosen. We have left off creation and restoration, God's ultimate plan. We've taken that which is in the middle. God saves me so that I can live a better life. A truncated, emaciated gospel like that makes the universe revolve around you and me. But the gospel declares that the universe revolves around God. And when you have a gospel that shows you that the universe revolves around God, you'll start to notice that it's all about him, yes, and you get swept up in a bigger story than yourself. And it actually does address your low self-esteem. Why? Because you were made, created with the image of God. 
And if you have a low self-esteem, the, the story of the gospel heals and realigns your low self-esteem by saying, you were made in the imagio Dei. You were made in the image of God. You are not pointless. You are not worthless. There is a plan for your life, and it's bigger than what you have been planning. God has numbered every hair on your head. He is intimately acquainted with all of your ways. You are not an accident. You are created with a divine mandate. Oh, but once you settle your teeth, once you sink your teeth into that and start to get a little arrogant about the image of God in you, it slows you down with restoration, reminding you that it's still a story about God. And so the gospel heals you. Yeah, praise God. The gospel heals Californians by getting us over ourselves. And you'll notice you understand the gospel because in the end, God gets all the glory and we get all the joy. Shalom. But there's some myself included, who have done the opposite. We have not taken out the bookends. We've taken out the middle. We said, you know, the gospel isn't about personal sin and holiness and repentance. It's about doing good stuff. You know, all I need to do is just do good stuff. I just need to show mercy and love justice and kindness and feed the poor and love the widow and do good things. And that itself is the powerful gospel. This is a movement that came about in the 20th century called the social gospel, seeing sin not as individual, not as personal, but as collective. And it started out good and it went awry because we took it too far, defining the good news as doing good stuff. Here's why that's wrong. Once you remove the middle of the story that we are sinners who need to be rescued, you still get a truncated, emaciated, shortened gospel. It's like eating a sandwich with nothing in the middle. It can't support the whole story because the heart of our problem is not hunger. The heart of the problem is not injustice. The heart of the problem is not a lack of clean water. The heart of the problem is sin. Look at California. We have no shortage of access to clean water and we are still as jacked up as any people in any underdeveloped country in the world. Why? We are sinners who need to be saved by the gospel. And at the heart of every corrupt government, at the heart of every corrupt system, every injustice, every broken marriage are individuals who do not understand the gospel. It is sin that Christ came to destroy for his glory. And out of that, we give people clean water. Clean water doesn't transform people. Good works don't change people. God transforms and changes people and he is at that moment whether you participate in it or not but what Ephesians what Paul is calling on the church to do in verse 10 is to step into the story to participate in what God has been doing for thousands of years we are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. He is calling us to participate in the ongoing shalom of God. What that means is walking in his original plans for us since the beginning of time. 
experiencing that shalom, that right relationship with God when you were lonely and destitute, striving after the wind. It means out of that relationship, out of that intimacy with God, letting it spill out into your other earthly relationships. And it means to rightly steward creation. Now that doesn't just mean planting a tree and pruning it. Creation is everything. It's society, it's culture, it's your workplace. God is calling you to go into the garden of your workplace to spread shalom. My problem, personally, is that I, in the jobs that I have been in, have often failed to see my secular job with the same intensity that God does. We're often guilty of separating the things that are sacred with the things that are secular, meaning I show up at church on Sunday and that is where I experience the shalom of God and Monday I go back to my job, I do my thing, I clock in and then on Tuesday I go help out at the soup kitchen where I'm really on mission. And so for us, our job place just happens to be that purgatory that we're stuck in for a time until we get to experience what God really has planned for us in church. Brothers and sisters, you are not called to just show up at work. You are called by a divine mandate to spread the Garden of Eden in your workplace. You are called to live out the shalom in your workplace. To quote a wise surfing pastor (laughs) in his book, Godspeed, he puts it this way, we see in the New Testament that Christ did most of his ministry and mission where people spent most of their time at work. This evidence rings in our ears because the life of the typical modern American church is flipped. The place Christ worked most often in the midst of the culture of the day is the very place that American Christians have most often evacuated. And how have we evacuated the workplace? Three ways. One is that we are overly driven. Some of you in this room are overly driven. You are faithful with your job. You are skilled. You have expertise. You are in a creative field. You are doing things, man. Lady. (laughs) You're getting stuff done. And you are so driven by your job that it is actually dictating the well-being of your mind. You are out of control because your job steers you. And so for you, you are in the place that God has you, but you are experiencing no shalom. You are outside of the garden. Brother and sister, be released from that pressure. The gospel releases you because you don't have to impress God by what you're able to do. The image of God resides inside of you Be still and know that he is God. Your work is not your salvation. Your employer is not your savior. Some of you are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You're not overly driven. You're lazy. And for a moment, I want to address 
everyone below 30 years of age. Because I don't know any of you older than 30, and I'm not. But if this applies to you, take from it whatever you want. I have had the privilege of going to dozens of cities around the world from Rome to Sri Lanka, from Ethiopia to Israel, and all over the United States from New York City to San Francisco, from Los Angeles to Boston. And I have never experienced more apathy among young people than I have here. I have never experienced a sense of purposelessness and apathy and laziness than I have on the coastline of California. And some of you young people who I love so much are sitting around waiting for that perfect opportunity to drop in your lap turning things down because your mind has been so steered by a consumeristic entitled gospel that you just won't do anything. And you have taken this verse and you have butchered it to death, saying God has planned good works for me. And you have taken good works to mean a perfect job, a dream job, that as soon as you graduate from college, you will get this entitlement of a a job earning you $40,000 a year as soon as you turn 21, and you will walk into your dream job and rule the world. And you know what? Your dream job is to be the president of the United States, when maybe God is calling you to be the president of the toilet shop. And you are ripping yourself off because your hope is in a job and not in the God of mission. What this mindset has done to people in Santa Barbara, in Carpinteria, and in Ventura County is it's caused you to become entitled, self-absorbed, lazy, and apathetic. Young men and women who spend their lives sitting on the couch, eating Cheetos, playing video games, drinking gourmet lattes, tweeting quotes by John Piper, when really what you need to do is grow up and get a job. I'm saying this for your own well-being as a 31-year-old who has gone through all of that in a room full of 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds who have gone through all of that and are watching you do the same. Don't waste your life. And for you, not wasting your life and walking in good works might mean scrubbing toilets and being faithful for the gospel. For some of you, you're not driven You're not overly driven, you're not lazy, you're discouraged because you are faithful in the workplace. You've been showing up from nine to five, you've been doing it for 20 years, and you can't for the life of you make the connection between your job and your faith. And it is a struggle because you want them to be the same. How does the gospel have implications for my life? 
You've looked at your job and you've looked at your value based on your job. And to those of you in this room who are overly driven, to those of you who are lazy and apathetic, to those of you who are discouraged, I say to you, by the grace of God, remember the gospel. That you are not loved by God because you are valuable. You are valuable because you are loved by God in Christ. And you, uh, it is not the nature of your employment that makes you special. Plumber, janitor, coffee maker, grocery bagger, lawyer, CEO. It is the image of God within you that has made you special in the sight of God. You do not need a job to live out the shalom of God. What the gospel does to all of us is it takes those of you who are overlooked by your peers and it gives you a sense of divine purpose. What the gospel does to those of you who are overworked and underpaid is it causes you to experience joy when no one else gives it to you because God is the source of your joy and strength. And the world needs to see this in the job place. It needs to see shalom. It needs to see men and women who show up in the job place, who have employers that hate them, co-workers that don't honor them, people that don't pay them what they deserve, and it needs to see Christians who can step in on the scene and live out the shalom, reconcile relationships, mend things that have been broken, live out faithfully what God intended in the garden, love people that do not love them back. The world needs to see this, and you can do that anywhere. You can do that in the nursery. You can do that from the pulpit. You can do that in a grocery store. You can do that babysitting because your employer is not a man and it's not a woman. It is God who from the beginning of time looked at you and declared you're mine. So listen to the words of Paul. He created you anew in Christ so that you can do the things he planned for you long ago. Step into the story. You don't need a sensational job to be faithful. Wherever you happen to be tonight is where God has put you on mission. You don't need to be sensational. Everything sensational has been done at the cross and in the tomb. You just need to be faithful with your job Faithful with your coworkers, faithful with your family, faithful with your spouse, faithful with your children, faithful with your enemies, faithful with your clients, and intimate with your God. Because ministry flows from intimacy. Once you begin to soak up that shalom yourself, you'll begin to look at your job differently. Because grace doesn't just traumatize you. It makes you contagious and it shakes up the environment that you're in. You can image God anywhere. You can image God playing with a bucket of rocks. Michelangelo liked to play with rocks. When the famous artist was asked by a passerby what he thinks when he approaches a slab of rock He stated, I am liberating an angel from this stone. And every time he did, everyone within the vicinity would experience and enjoy what he had been walking in. 
Christian, you have been liberated to spread liberty. You have tasted of the gospel that you might be gospeling. You have tasted of shalom that you might spread the Garden of Eden where you have been placed. And some of you may be having a hard time with that in your job place, in your relationships, in your places of recreation because you have not yet been liberated. And you can't work with God until you have understood how he has worked for you. Until you have been traumatized by the grace that has been shown towards you in Jesus Christ. We lost the shalom in the Garden of Eden and Jesus went back to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, to retrieve it for us. And he has anointed every single man and woman in this building who calls on the name of Jesus Christ to then emanate the shalom of God everywhere they happen to be. You're only in this church building for two hours a week. Where else do you spend your time? That's your mission. For the glory of God, for the enjoyment of humanity, in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in SB and Carpinteria and in Ventura. We consider ourselves to be among the most blessed and affluent people on the face of the earth. Privileged with so many different resources. And we remember the words that was spoken by the Lord. To whom much is given, much is required. And God, you have given us not just many resources, not just wealth, not just opportunities, not just stuff. You have given us a wealth of grace. And God, I'm asking that this morning we would not be overcome with doubt or guilt or shame because of the many different ways that we have followed in the footsteps of Adam, ways that I have failed to fulfill your mission. I pray that you would remove that shame and you would open our eyes to the kingdom of God that is expanding before our eyes and our daddy in heaven who looks at his children and says, I want you to jump in riding shotgun, and I want you to roll into this mission with me for my glory. God, give us a glimpse of the garden in our own context. And remind us again, Lord, that we are still as incapable as ever of doing what you called us to do. And so this morning, we ask for the Holy Spirit to fall upon the church along the coastlands of California to empower us and to fill us afresh with the presence of the living God. As we worship, Lord, transform us for your glory and teach the world about a better story. In Jesus' name.